始めBirthday Marines. Uh, it's November 10th, so you know that uh, it's not Veterans Day. It's in fact an addendum to Chesty Puller's birthday. So happy birthday. No, and all jokes and kiddings aside, but um, I just wanted to start this episode. I think it's actually very important, um, and it forms the crux of not simply the doctrine of the United States Marine Corps, um, but the wider doctrine, which is what is being called now. Uh, multi-domain dominance by the army as well as if we go further in the majority of the NATO doctrine at large. Now what does that mean necessarily? I'll explain to you further. However all of this is based on what is termed maneuver warfare. Maneuver warfare hasn't always been around. It's come around in its rudimentary phase especially during World War One, with the advent, of course, of Schwerpunkt, uh, stormtroopers, and basically the concentration of force. But I don't want to get too far into it, because I think there's this great book that we're going to cover right now, Legionaries, and uh, I'm going to take a more serious tone for this episode, especially because of the fact of how important it is, and how essential not simply to these military warfighting groups or organizations it is to how they function and understanding them, but also most importantly how war is at its essence. Not just this, the essence of conflict, but the essence of how to win. And so without further ado, I would like to present to you this book written by William S. Lind. Um, it's called The Maneuver Warfare Handbook, and it is written under the auspices of Westview Special Studies in Military Affairs. It came out in 1984. It's been around the block, but even in its time, even today, there are old heads that are trying to get rid of it because they're idiots. And, uh, well, luckily we don't have to listen to them longer because uh, out of the entire boomer generation, William S. Lind and a few others stand out as men against time, against their generation, okay? You understand? Don't respect them. Anyway, and all, without further ado, let's open this book up. And I'll go ahead and read you the forward, just so you understand William S. Lind and some of the background of what this book is about. Forward, Colonel John C. Studd, USMC retired. The author of this book has never served a day of active military duty. He has never been shot at, although there are no doubt some senior officers who would like to remedy that latter deficiency. Yet... He demonstrates an amazing understanding of the art of war, as have only a small handful of military thinkers I have come across in my career. I served over 31 years 
active duty service with the Marine Corps, saw combat in both Korea and Vietnam, and attended service schools from the basic school to the National War College. Yet only towards the end of my military career did I realize how, I, how little I really understood the art of war. Even if as, as a PFC in Korea, after being medevaced along with the most of my platoon, after a fruitless frontal assault against nu numerous and superior North Korean forces, it seemed to me there had to be a better way to wage war. Seventeen years later, commanding a battalion at Kaesan, I was resolved that none of my Marines would die for lack of superior combat power. But we were still relying on the concentration of superior firepower to win, essentially still practicing Grant's attrition warfare, and we were still doing frontal assaults. When I first heard Bill Lynn speak, I must confess I resented a mere civilian expressing criticism of the way our beloved Corps did things. After all, he was not one of us. He had not shed blood with us in battle. He was not a brother. And I had strong suspicions that he had difficulty passing the PFT. But what he said made sense. For the first time, I was personally hearing someone advocate an approach to war that based on intellectual innovation rather than the sheer material superiority. Mission-type orders, surface and gaps, the Schwerpunkt, instead of the rigid formulas and checklists that we normally associate with our training and doctrine. It was a stimulating experience. Through Lynn's articulation, years of my own reading of military history began to make a lot more sense. But why all this from a civilian instead of a professional soldier? Here he goes, here he goes. In fact, the entire movement of the military reform is driven largely by civilian intellectuals, not military officers. One no notable exception being retired Air Force Colonel John Boyd. When you think about it, this is not surprising. He has never institutionalized, excuse me, we have never institutionalized a system that encourages innovative ideas or criticism from subordinates. Proposing significant change is frequently viewed as criticism of superiors, since they are responsible for the way things are, and borders on disloyalty, if not insubordination. So it is not surprising that the movement for reform comes from outside the military establishment. And it is not surprising that the author of this book should be in the forefront of the reform movement and the president of the Military Reform Institute. A magum culotte history major from Dartmouth, Bill Lind was gifted with a brilliant mind and a rare talent for translating the lessons of history into practical application. He was studied and researched war and has delved into the minds of the more successful practitioners, as no professional military officer I know has done. His crusade to sell maneuver warfare has made him well-known, if not well-loved, by those who read the Marine Corps Gazette and other current military literature. In this handbook, Bill Lind lays out the concept of maneuver warfare in clear, understandable language, and he supports and illustrates his theories with excellent historical examples. And, of course... B. H. Littlehart once remarked that the only thing harder than getting a new idea into the military mind is to get an old one out. In 1925, when he was expounding such heretical theories as the indirect approach, the American General Service School's review of 
current military literature, dismissed one of Littlehart's major works as a negative value to the instructors of these schools. I expect Marine Corps schools to receive this publication with sim similar enthusiasm, but I cannot believe a professional military officer would not benefit from reading it. For the first time in our history, we face a potential enemy with the superiority in men and materiel. Against such an enemy, we cannot win with the firepower attrition doctrine we embrace today. In this book, Bill Lind offers an alternative. And that's the conclusion of the foreword. Now, at this time in 1984, auspicious year, of course, the Cold War was still on. It wasn't, it's only in retrospect, with the benefit of hindsight, that we see the Soviet Union and the common term collapse in 1991. However, at this time, the Soviets were in the middle of their invasion of Afghanistan, the reaching out and invasion of other different countries, the local revolutions of communist countries, or rather capitalist countries turning communist or socialist, was on the rise. It seemed very much at this time that the West was under attack. It was possibly the time where we thought the tide was turning against us. Research and technology had been for a long time being catched up, or excuse me, caught up in parity between the Soviet Union and their bloc and ours. However, as we know, 1991 was a seminal year and that all changed. For many, that also meant that the end of the world, or rather, in the words of Francis Fukuyama, the end of history had occurred, in which the unipolar organization of the universe would be centered around Washington, D.C. and Hollywood, and people would be spending the rest of their lives sticking dildos up their asses. But, alas, that is not to come, and a lot of the things have changed since then, and a lot of this resulted in the fact that these countries, which formed the ex-Soviet bloc, which are now called the emergent bloc, or emergent countries, also imbibe or incorporate countries that hadn't previously been part of the common term. So, during the Cold War, there's a delineation between first world, second world, and third world. Now, of course, we associate that with the economic development, but that is not so. The first world were people aligned with NATO, the second with the common term, and the third were people or polities that were non-aligned, who practiced lines of non-alignment. So, for instance, the Middle East, Israel, and the rest of the Middle Eastern nations, they practiced for a very long time playing one side off the other, hence why there's such a mis mishmash of different military equipment, advisors, military philosophy, and study in these different countries. Now, things have changed, of course. Russia is ascendant. Russia is becoming more powerful and obviously expressing its muscles, expressing irredentism. China and the PRC is more powerful than it ever has been in a thousand years. It has mass, it has technology on its side, it has the will to win, and a strong ethos for country and victory. America is divided divided ethnically, divided philosophically, divided politically, corrupt to the core, the state of readiness, with the exception of the Marine Corps and the submarine force and parts of the aviation community, 
are abysmal and mediocre at best. Our allies are weak. The EU, for instance, is of course very weak and actually doesn't support much of its military commitments it's supposed to to the United States and instead functions as a neutered satrap of the United States Empire. Furthermore, deindustrialization has affected us as well. The entire industrial base of the West has been offshored in what is called globalism, where corrupt elites, for search of a very cheap buck, they basically sold out our country and relocated a number of our infrastructure, key infrastructure, especially when it comes to our war-making material, but also regular hard capital. So basically, manufacture of automobiles, of microchips, etc. The world is changing drastically against our favor, and it is worse than it was during the Cold War. Why do I say all these things? Because we are also in the similar position where we cannot leverage simply technology in mass against the enemy. And mind you, no matter what your political beliefs are, they are the enemy. Because they don't care what your beliefs are, whether or not you're sympathetic or antipathetic to these countries. They will nuke you, and they will kill you, and they will enslave you, and that's it. So without further ado, I would like to provide you with a solution, especially for those military leaders out there, to the qualms of today. Focusing, instead of having multi-domain mass dominance of the enemy that we have enjoyed against insurgents with small arms, we have to start using our brain again. We have to start thinking outside the box. We have to start thinking robustly and dynamically and faster than the enemy. Already, Colonel Boyd and William S. Lind have provided us the roadmap forward, but it is now time to revisit that, to revisit the conventional practice of mass warfare, conventional combined arms, and, of course, imbibing the doctrine, nay, the philosophy of art of war from Lind Maneuver Warfare. Now, revisiting, of course, Lynn's book, and I recommend you buy it. It's still available, and I think I suspect it's out of print. It cost me roughly forty dollars to attain to tactically attain the uh, book. It's roughly 130 pages, uh, replete with not just maps, explanations, and exercises, but of course the main meat and potatoes. So, what I'm going to do is in this transmission, I am going to focus on the essential. I'm not going to go through with the extraneous things. If you want to, especially if you're a young leader out there and you want to do a TDG, there are already ones in place in this book. So that work is done for you. But I'm going to head and I'm going to go ahead and read this chapter, which is literally like two pages in theory of maneuver warfare because it is so jam-packed there is no fluff in this book, so it's so jam-packed with knowledge that you can't miss it. Okay, so without further ado, this is Lynn now, The Theory of Maneuver Warfare. 
Maneuver warfare is not new. It probably dates from the first time a caveman surprised an enemy from behind instead of meeting him club to club. The first clear case in recorded history as the Battle of Lucretia in 371 BC. Thebans won that battle thanks to a surprise strike against the right flank of the rigid Spartan phalanx. Hannibal's defeat of the Romans at Cannae in 216 BC was one of the most decisive tactical victories of all time, was an example of maneuver warfare. Modern history offers many examples. Rosencrantz at Chattanooga, Grant at Vicksburg, and Jackson's Valley Campaign in the American Civil War, German infiltration tactics in the offensive in 1918, and the Second World War Blitzkrieg, General Sharon's attack across the Suez Canal in 1973. Why are all these cases of maneuver warfare? What is maneuver? Sometimes the word maneuver is used as a synonym for movement, such as in references to fire and maneuver in small unit tactics. A tradi traditional definition is offered by the Soviet colonel F.D. Sveldlov in recent study, Tactical Maneuver. In quotations, Maneuver is organized movement of troops, in parentheses forces, during combat operations on a new axis line and a region for the purpose of taking an advantageous position relative to the enemy in order to deliver a decisive strike. But when used in the frame, or excuse me, phrase, maneuver warfare, maneuver means much more. It is what all these cases, Lucretia, Kenai, Vicksburg, the German 1918 offensive, the Suez Canal crossing, and many, many others have in common. The theory of maneuver warfare must answer the question, what is the essence of success in all these cases? Only recently has someone suggested a convincing answer. The man is a retired Air Force colonel and fighter pilot named John Boyd. Colonel Boyd's development of the theory of maneuver warfare began not with ground battles, but with a study of some mock air-to-air -air combat exercises conducted at Nellis Air Force Base in 1974. What led him back to the study of air-to-air -air combat during the Korean War? American aviators were very successful in that conflict. They achieved a 10-to-1 kill ratio over their North Korean and Chinese opponents. And Soviet opponents, mind you. <clears throat> Colonel Boyd began his study with the question, how and why did we do so well? He noted that in several traditional measures of aircraft performance, the principal communist fighter, the MiG-15, was superior to the American F-86. It would climb and accelerate faster. It had a better sustained turn rate. But in two less obvious measures of aircraft performance, the F-86 was much superior to the MiG. First, the pilot could see out much better, the F-86 bubble canopy gave its pilots very good outward vision, while the MiG's fared canopy made it difficult to see out. Second, the F-86 had high-powered and highly effective hydraulic controls, and the MiG did not. This means that while the MiG could do many individual actions, including cl turn, climb, and accelerate, better than the F-86, the F-86 could transition from one action to another more quickly than the MiG. Using these two superiorities, the American pilots developed a tactical approach that forced the MiG into a series of actions. Each time the action changed, the F-86 gained a time advantage. 
because of the F-86 pilot could see more quickly how the situation had changed and how he also could make his aircraft shift more quickly to a new action. With each change, the MiG's action became more inappropriate until they were so inappropriate that the MiG gave the F-86 a good firing opportunity. Often, in appearing, the F-86 pilot realized that what was happening to him and panicked, which made the American pilot's job all the easier. Later, Colonel Boyd made a study in combat, ground combat to see if there were situations similar to that where he found in the air war over Korea. He found that in battles, campaigns, wars like Lutra, Vicksburg, and France in 1940, a similar thing seemed to have happened. One side was presented the other with a sudden, unexpected change, or a series of such changes to which it could not adjust in a timely manner. As a result, it was defeated, and it was generally defeated at a small cost to the victor. Often, the losing side had been physically stronger than the winner, and often the same sort of panic paralysis was seen in the North Korean and Chinese pilots who had seemed to occur, had shown seemed to occur. Colonel Boyd asked himself, what did all these cases have in common? His answer was what is now called the Boyd theory, which is the theory of maneuver warfare. The briefing Colonel Boyd gives to explain his theory, Patterns of Conflict, takes over five hours. But at the cost of missing some of the subtitles and subtleties, the supporting historical evidence in the briefing, it can be summarized as follows. Conflict can be seen as time-competitive observation, orientation, decision, action cycles. Each party to a conflict begins by observing. And before I go through this process, it's called the OODA loop. So each party to a conflict begins by observing. He observes himself, his physical surroundings, and his enemy. On the base of his, basis of his observation, he orients, that is to say, he makes a mental image or snapshot of his situation. On the base of his orientation, he makes a decision. He puts the decision into effect, i.e. he acts. Then, because he assumes this action has changed the situation, he observes again and starts the process anew. His actions follow this cycle, sometimes called the Boyd cycle or OODA loop. There you go. If one side in a conflict can consistently go through the Boyd cycle faster than the other, it gains a tremendous advantage. By the time the slower side acts, the faster side is doing something different from what he has observed, and his action is inappropriate. With each cycle, the slower party's action is inappropriate by a larger time margin, even though he desperately strives to do something that will work. Each action is less useful than its predecessor. He falls farther and farther behind. Ultimately, he ceases to be effective. Now, he's going to go into a bunch of examples, but I kind of want to keep it to the point, right? I don't want to, I don't want to keep it crazy, but I'll give you one example. So, for instance, in 1940, the invasion of France. What happened was the Wehrmacht put the French forces on branches. So... Uh, re remember, if you can have a mental image, in Alsace-Lorraine at Strasbourg, there's this massive line called the Maginot Line. It, this is what is called a surface. We'll go into it later. However, 
the 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 Wehrmacht went through the Ardennes forest. It was unknown whether or not the Wehrmacht would turn south or north, right? So basically, this was where Rommel's own Panzer division he was in command of uh, was in charge of that thrust. Now, the way that the French forces had their command and control set up is that people as famous as Charles de Gaulle, who was an armor commander himself, um, had to radio from his command tank to his higher corps commander, and then finally hired that to that, to the equivalent of the Pentagon in France, and finally they had to wire all the way down. And remind to remind you, this was before radio communications were plenty, right? This is when wired communications had to happen so, so this communication would happen and it took a very very long time now the Wehrmacht on the other hand had mission type tactics which gave them the latitude so junior officers from the brigade all the way down the ability to make calls based on um, the general disposition which is called the commander's intent so a lot of you that are in NATO you'll know that the beginning of your your five paragraph order, right? Hosmiak, it starts with commander's intent. So long as you're acting in accordance with commander's intent, ultimately you're doing what the mission is dictating to you and you're applying that as the opportunity presents itself. Or, for instance, if things are going south, you can make the call and change tactics to try and make that 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 goal happen. And that was the difference. So what ended up happening is the reason why France got knockout blowed in the 1940s was because literally Charles de Gaulle and his entire armored division were sent north into Belgium, anticipating the Germans were going to do another Schlieffen plan, right? And what happened was uh, they got tricked out, and uh, the and Rommel, since he was given such latitude, he actually was able to capitalize on the initial knockout blow and push it all the way forward without having to constantly ring daddy back at uh, headquarters command in Berlin. So that's why it was so successful. But I don't want to go and uh, read too much of that for you. So like I said, we're going to go and, and continue through this example and uh, continue from there. So he continues forward and he begins like this. If the object in maneuver warfare is to move through the OODA loop faster than the enemy, what do you need to do? How can you be consistently faster? Much of the rest of this book is an effort to address that question. But in terms of general history, the following points are worth thinking about. So there are about four points. We'll get through them really quick. So one. Only a decentralized military can have a fast OODA loop. If the observations must be passed up the chain of command, the orientation made, and the decision taken at a high level, and the command for action then transmitted back down the chain, the OODA loop is going to be slow. Remember, this is the example I just gave you. However, he gives another example. As the Israeli military historian Martin Van Kraveland has observed from Plato to NATO, the history of command in war consists of an endless quest of certainty. Certainty concerning the state and intentions of the enemy's forces. Certain, certainty concerning the manifold factors which together constitute the environment, from the weather and the terrain to radioactivity and the presence of chemical warfare agents. And, last but definitely not least, the certainty concerning the state and activities of one's own forces. 
Historical commanders have always faced the choice between two basic ways of coping with uncertainty. One was to construct an army of automatons following the orders of a single man, allowed to do only that which could be controlled. The other, to design organizations and operations in such a way to enable the former to carry out the latter without the need for continuous control. So as I said, giving latitude, right? The second of these methods by and large, provide the more successful than the first. And the ongoing revolution and technology of command notwithstanding, this is likely the r to remain so in the future, and indeed so, long as war itself exists. Maneuver warfare means that you will not only accept confusion and disorder, so this is the second point, and operate successfully within it, though decentralized, you will also generate confusion and disorder. So not only are you bearing it, but you are inflicting this, okay? So the reconnaissance pool. Tactics of the German Blitzkrieg were inherently disorderly. Higher headquarters could neither direct nor predict the exact path of the advance. Remember, Rommel, 1940. But the multitude of German reconnaissance thrusts generated massive confusion among the French in 1940. Oh, boom, there you go. Each was reported as a new attack, and the Germans seemed to be everywhere, and the French, whose system demanded certainty before making any decisions, were paralyzed. Perfect. I love being proved right. I'm always right. General Lance is always right. Damn straight. Okay. Number three. All patterns, res recipes, and formulas are to be avoided. Again, all patterns, recipes, and formulas are to be avoided. Are you hearing me? Damn. A lot of people are trying to, I remember like way back when, they're always trying to come out with uh, rules of thumb for X, Y, and Z and this and that. Just be fluid. You have a brain. The reason why they select leaders for a high IQ is that you're able to take a fluid and dynamic situation and quickly understand the trend and apply the decision. That is the whole point of fluid intelligence. Anyway, going on. The enemy must not be able to predict your actions. Your tactics follow a predictable pattern. The enemy can easily cut inside your OODA loop. If he can predict what you will do, he will be waiting for you. Right? So if I know you're going to turn right, I'm going to freaking clobber you. That kind of thing. Sorry, i got to drink some whiskey. Okay. This is why it's so hard to tell someone to do a maneuver warfare. Excuse me. To do maneuver warfare. There is no formula you can learn. When someone says, cut out all the bull about theory, just tell me what to do, you can't. You can talk about how to think and about some useful techniques, but you can't give new formulas to replace the ones currently taught at Marine Corps schools. Well, I can see that we've learned very little since then. This is, wow, near on 40 years. Holy shit. Anyway, instead of the checklist or a cookbook, maneuver warfare requires commanders who can sense more than they can see, who understand the opponent's strength and weaknesses and their own, and who can find the enemy's critical weaknesses in a specific situation, which is seldom easy. They must be able to create multiple threats and to keep the enemy uncertain as to which is real. They must be able to see their options in the situation before them and constantly create new options. The shift rapidly and shift rapidly among options as the situation develops. General Herman Balk, one of the most successful practitioners of maneuver warfare, said, 
I'm against the school approach that says, in accordance with the ideas of the general staff, in this situation you must do thus and such. On the contrary, you must proceed dictated by the personalities involved and the particularities of the situation. For instance, if you're attacking at 7 o'clock in the morning and you're given clear tasks to each of your divisions, this one takes this objective, the next one grabs this, the third one does nothing except protect the left flank, at the next attack opportunity may have an almost identical situation, but everything must be changed completely because your, com your, because your most competent division commander has been killed in the meanwhile. Therefore, one of the first principles has to be there can be no fixed schemes. Every scheme every pattern is wrong. Okay, remember, every scheme, every pattern is wrong. No two situations are identical. This is why the study of military history can be extremely dangerous. Another principle that follows from this is never do the same thing twice. Even if something works well for you once, by the second time the enemy will have adapted. So you have to think up something new. No one thinks of becoming a great painter simply by imitating Michelangelo. Similarly, you can't become a great military leader just by imitating so-and-so. It has to come from within. In the last analysis, military command is an art. One man can do it and must, w most will never learn. Excuse me. Let's start again. In the last analysis, military command is an art. One man can do it and most will never learn. After all, the world is not full of Raphaels either. So, one of the undertones or things that people really don't like to hear but is true is the factor of IQ. I keep on harping on this because it is difficult for most to admit, most to understand, but your brain is given a certain hardware and what they're alluding to is fluid intelligence so the ability not simply to solve a problem but to solve a problem quickly being give a second problem and solve that problem quickly as well there are hacks to this that can help and it helps even the most genius commanders like Napoleon for instance a lot of people c believe that Napoleon um, he was just a genius and he of course he was I mean he was a ridiculous genius however he helped his subordinates in this way. He said, well, it is not simply that I figured it out in the, meaning, in the meantime. What he did is that even before an operation would begin, he would think it through, think what he wanted to do, and then think about how things could go wrong, how they could do well, what he would do for follow-up. So already he said that basically in the years prior to a campaign or an invasion, he already was thinking problems through and had solved them as rules of thumb. And what happened was when the moment or occasion occurred, he leveraged them that had already been solved. Now, of course, this takes a huge mind, a good memory, and all this kind of stuff, but this is the purpose of training in the military. And as Picasso, for, for likening everything to art, then Picasso is a great example because he says you must learn, you ma must learn as a student to master the rules, and once you become a master, you can break them. So you've got to learn the basics. But what maneuver warfare is is about breaking the rules after you've learned all the basics, right? And a lot of this hinges on your ability 
to have thought through situations, leveraging military history and the experiences of others, arming yourself with what tactics or general stuff that they did to negotiate those obstacles, and in the time that you're called upon to do something, you leverage those examples in a fluid manner in accordance with maneuver warfare. Now, if you're going to liken this, how to think about maneuver warfare as a theory or like the essence, think about it as an operating system of a computer. It's not necessarily telling you what to do, it's telling you how to think. So just meditate on that for a little bit and we'll keep on going forward. So continuing on, remember operating system, right? So how to think, not necessarily what to think particularly, right? Not the constellation, not the data points, but thinking about how to connect dots. Now, continuing on, if this is of course Lind now, if maneuver warfare cannot be done in formulas and recipes, how can it be done? To help answer this question, you might want to look at some pictures of maneuver warfare. So for instance, here we go, uh, a good example, right? Uh, uh, just to think conceptually of maneuver warfare is this. The expanding torrent. B.H. Littlehart, the famous British military historian and theorist, drew an analogy between a maneuver warfare attack and flowing water. He wrote, If we watch a torrent bearing down on each successive bank of or earthen dam in its path, we see that it first beats against the obstacle, feeling and testing it at all points. Eventually, it finds a small crack at some point. Through this crack, pour the first driblets of water and rush straight on. The pent-up water on each side is drawn towards the breach. It swirls through around the flanks of the breach, wearing away the earth on each side and so widening the gap. Simultaneously, the water behind pours straight through the breach between the side eddies and we're wearing away the flanks. Directly it has passed through, it expands to widen once more the onrush of the torrent. Thus, as the water pours through in every, excuse me, ever-increasing volume, the onrush of the torrent swells to its original proportions, leaving in turn each crumbling obstacle behind it. Thus, nature's forces carry out the ideal attack, automatically maintaining the speed, the breadth, and the continuity of the attack. Now, of course, he explains to you big picture what's going on, right? <clears throat> but he goes on, I swear to God, it's the fucking commies radioing my throat, making my voice crack, sounding like a cuck. They're cucking me. It's fucked up. No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, here we go. Picture two, right? This is a second example. It's going to be give you a detailed example, battlefield example of what this means. Okay, so German defect defensive tactics in 1917. During the winter of 1916 and 1917, the Germans abandoned what we think of as the classic First World War defense, where men were closely packed into trenches and fought to hold every inch of ground. Instead, they adopted an elastic defense in depth, a defense that reflected maneuver warfare. Captain Timothy Lupfer discusses, 
discusses it in his excellent study, The Dynamics of Doctrine. The trenches were necessarily... Um, oh, this is the Captain Lufer, by the way. The trenches were necessarily for daily living, but once detected, they were lathered with preparatory fire and barrages. Deep dugouts in forward areas were also impractical, for soldiers remained in them too long after the enemy barrage lifted and were often captured. Therefore, under heavy fire, the forward German soldiers evacuated their trenches and shifted from shellhole to shellhole, avoiding concentrations of fire and escaping the detection of aerial artillery spotters. The Allied advance would thus first encounter resistance from pockets of German survivors in shell holes. Having been concealed from, the, from aerial observation, units positioned on the reverse slope would then open fire unexpectedly. The Allies would also encounter fortified strongpoints built to provide for all-around defense, and they engaged the attackers whenever possible with devastating enfilade fire. The strongpoints would remain fighting, even if cut off by the enemy advance. So what is he saying? So what is he saying? What is he fucking saying, right? So what he's saying is basically the way that trenches were built at first were one singular line. Right, like start 1914 when the first rudimentary ditches were borne out. It was just one single line. All the dudes were in that line. They were holding that line. Come what may, hell or high water. That's literally the 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 the, the classic, right? And then they started realizing, wow, that's kind of stupid, right? I don't know if you've ever been to a seashore, but there are crabs that kind of like float back and forth when the, the, the wave comes in and wave comes out, but they ultimately stay in the same general location. That is exactly how the Germans decided to act. Instead of staying hell or high water in one position, getting yourself killed or captured, basically what they're like they're they're like that crab they'd float back to avoid artillery to avoid detection and and capture and then they would counterattack and fire on the enemy as they advanced these are two different approaches you have to be more flexible it's like dancing you got to have a little bit of flexibility in your hips you have to be willing to do so so that is something that military men in general have a hard time doing everything must be just so everything has to be particular and cut and cornered and all this kind of ridiculous stuff no you have to have a gift for flexibility of mind to be willing to see things out of order and still with threads golden threads thread it together into a great whole you had to be flexible. There's this like famous Italian saying that they would rather break their forehead on a beam than bend. Well, that's why the Italians always freaking lost, right? Like even though I get it's a poetic inspiration, you have to be flexible so you don't break. It's actually those flexible branches, not the brittle ones, that will fuck people up. So remember that trees are strong because they have a certain level of give, just like skyscrapers. You don't see it because it's kind of like imperceptible, but skyscrapers are able to have such great strength and size and height because they have some give to them. So you, start, you have to start thinking that way, flexible and dynamically. Now returning to the text, I think he goes through and he talks about the Eastern Front, and I think 
it would have been a lot more interesting for you guys to have heard from the Eastern Front um, during the Second World War. However, I don't want to drag it out here. Now, continuing um, to underscore things that I've already told you, right, um, is the element of tactics. So, I'll just read out the horse's mouth here. Maneuver warfare is not a very concerned with the names of stoves and skiing techniques. It looks at tactics differently. Its useful definition of tactics in maneuver warfare is... Tactics is a process of combining two elements, techniques and education, through three mental filters or reference points. Mission type orders, the focus or effort or Schwerpunkt, so focus of effort is Schwerpunkt, and the search for enemy surfaces and gaps, with the object of producing a unique approach for the specific enemy, time, and place. So I'm going to repeat that because it's a little bit confusing. So what are you going to do? is take your technique and education, which is to say everything that you're taught. So basically what you have in your back pocket. So if you're a, an infantryman, it's about deploying, you know, line skirmishes, skirmishers, excuse me, wedge, uh, patrolling, all that bullshit that you learned in the schoolhouse, in addition to whatever military history you might have in your back pocket. Okay, so that's what technique and education is. What are the mental filters? And I'll list them again. Mission type orders, Schwerpunkt, surface and gap. So, what's a mission type order? A mission type order is that commander's intent. So, basically, if you're a subordinate commander, you're given a, a commander's intent. That's what basically you're given as a filter. It's like, okay, I'm trying to achieve X, right? What's Y? Schwerpunkt. So, the focus of effort. So, I'm already given X, now I have to figure out where am I going to go with that, where I'm going to focus all my forces on, all my combat power, not just my fixing power, my combat power, so my penetrating power. That's what's called Schwerpunkt, focus of effort. And then thirdly, searching for surfaces and gaps. So where you put your Schwerpunkt, where you put your focus, is on the gap, not the surface. So the surface is where like things are. So for instance, remember that 1940 example that I gave you a long time ago. The surface for the French defense was the Maginot Line. It was this massive, I think it was like a hundred freaking miles of huge like underground bunkers, like state-of-the-art cannons and all this crazy shit and like barracks and like like divisions worth of men underground, completely insulated from shelling, uh, from, you know, you couldn't be stormed. It was just impregnable. That's what a surface is. What's a gap? The gap is the Ardennes. The gap is the place there's not much defense. It's where people are not expecting you. Um, the French didn't think the Wehrmacht would go through the Ardennes forest because it was so dense. They didn't think that the tanks could push through all that wooded effort. And it was a young forest, too, so it was which is actually kind of strange. Young forests are actually more difficult tra to traverse than old forests because young forests, here's a little tidbit for you, um, they have a lot more saplings and they have a lot more bushes, leaves, and foliage, which makes it hard to navigate, but also it fucks with the tires. And it gets, like, it, it causes the, uh, um, I forgot the exact term for it, but basically it gets stuck, stuck in the treads, between the wheel and the tread, and it, it's hard to actually kind of force down. Now, in an old forest where you have big-ass trees, first of all, there's not much underbrush. 
right? Because the big old trees are killing the small trees because they're taking all the, 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 the light. But also, so it's a lot clearer of a forest floor. And on top of that, these old trees are a lot easier to be pushed down by engineer units or whatever it may be. And it, the obstacles in the way are far fewer and simpler, okay? So that's exactly what happened to Ardennes. So remember, 1940s is a perfect example. Maginot Line is the surface. Ardennes Forest, where there's no defensive lines for the French, or relatively, that's the gap. So remember, those are the three things that you're looking for when you're coming to fulfill a mission. I think it would be remiss of me to continue too long, and I don't want to bore you. So Mr. Lin goes on, and he explains things in no uncertain terms about the elements of what he's talking about, Schwerpunkt, and he gives historical examples, and at some point in the future, I will revisit this, because this is the center for every military officer's thinking. It should be this and B.H. Littlehart's strategy book. If you have to dump your entire brain of war, war excuse me, for the modern context, it is these two books that will help you. Maneuver Warfare Handbook, B.H. Littlehart's Strategy. Now, I want to, I guess, revisit the past and explain why Blitzkrieg, and for the last time, no one cares what they were actually called during this time. The Germans didn't call it Blitzkrieg, and actually, it was majority infantry. I don't care. Nobody cares. That's the beauty of language, is that it's a living thing. And whether or not the Germans like it or some autistic person on the internet expects that it's called whatever the hell it's called, remember that it's Blitzkrieg now. It's just Blitzkrieg. Just move the fuck on. Because it encapsulates the term of what it is. It's combined arms warfare thought at a quick level, quick OODA loops, decentralized command and control, and aggressive action. It's perfect. Lightning war. Why is that so difficult? Anyway... Returning. So what I would say is this, is that basically the war, or rather the fields of fire, lie on our horizon. Whether you like it or not, it's likely that it's going to happen. A war between us and the East. And when you're arming yourself mentally, so you see in a warrior's armory, it's not guns or swords or knives or maps or whatever, that are the essential tool of the warrior. It's the mind. Because you can give me anything, even unarmed, and I would still be the most valuable warrior, <clears throat> still exacting damage and successes and victories based purely on the fact of I know how to think. Know how to think first, and then from there proceed to gather whatever mass equipment that you can. We will go back and we will talk about things. I mean, in his book, for instance, he has, you know, I highly recommend it. I'll link it in the, the description below because I think it's absolutely necessary that you buy if you can. Um, but it, here it is. It's broken down in lectures after this. So here's an appendix, Fundamentals and Tactics. Um, so lecture one, surfaces and gaps. So he goes in depth on the concept that I elucidated to you prior, surface and gap. 
Lecture 2, Mission Tactics. So he goes in depth on Aufgruppstaktik. I don't know how to pronounce freaking German. So anyway, lection, uh, Lecture 3, The Main Effort. So he kind of goes into Schwerpunkt. Lecture 4, The Concept of the Objective. So he understands what the objective is. So it's like, it's not simply about willy-nilly assigning surface gap, blah, 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 blah. It's like, what is worth it? And I think it's one of the most important things that Lind reorients the focus of war back to people, okay? It's people that are the the origin of politics. They're the origin of, of communication. They're the origin of life. That was the mistake that a lot of British military officers and uh, the West in general did is that they tried to hold places and places don't freaking matter because if you for whatever reason transferred all the people from Germany to India it, the place that the Germans are that is Germany does that make sense it's not the the, the physical like feature that matters and so that's something that you have to understand and like be aware of but it's something we'll cover at a future episode. Um, but like I said, if you're a, a junior military officer or a senior one, or if you are even a listed or if you're a concerned citizen and citizen-soldier type individual, if you want to understand war, war is very simple. However, a lot of people are ignorant of it because they choose to be ignorant. Because a lot of people that are attracted to the discipline of war, they want things to be perfect. They think it's a parade ground drill exercise where it's everything must be just so and you will win and you will be in formation and blah blah blah. No. War is messy, it's chaotic, it has a fog of war, and it all hinges on aggressiveness and tenacity to achieve an objective well thought out and decisively taken. Right? It's about aggressiveness and fluidity and dy dynamism of mind. You have to be dynamite, okay? And it is something when I was in, I was trying to change the mindset of my peers, but also my superiors, but also now that I have the opportunity, you need to be the disciples of Mr. Lind. You need to take it upon yourself not to just imbibe the lessons here in Maneuver Warfare, but also to exude it amongst your peers, your followers, you know, your subordinates and your superiors, but also everywhere you go. It is with that tenacity that we will win and will actually change the culture of the United States military force. I think this is exactly how Mr. Lind went about it when he first was coming out with it, but it's something that we need to continuously rehone because for the last 20 years we have been waging a war which has not just materially under-equipped us, but it has mentally and spiritually under-equipped us for what is to come. I say this now, November 10th, Marine Corps birthday of course, of 2023 and mind you if you think war isn't coming it is be prepared be ready and be trained and that is all general lance sergeant barnes as always getting hammered at the command post thank you technica <laughs>